0: All right, well, it's very exciting what God's doing in the building. It's more exciting what what God is doing in the church. You know, the church is not the building, amen? Church is not the building. We've already got the church. We're just getting a new box to put the people in. So uh, praise the Lord that we have a great church. But I ask myself, um, what teachings of Christ would be most helpful for us as we uh, are preparing to step into a brand new stage of ministry? We're going to be able to reach more people than we've ever reached before. Word is going to get out. We're going to have more visibility. 17,000 cars a day are going to pass you know, our new home. How do we get ready? How do we get ready to do ministry better in the new building? And what, what jumped into my mind is uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus sends out basically seven letters to seven churches. He sends them like a report card on things they're doing good, things they're doing bad. And I thought, that's where we have to go. Over the next seven weeks leading into our new building, we're going to hear each of those letters as if he wrote them to us. Imagine getting a letter, Dear Harvest Payless, signed by Jesus, filled with stuff he wants us to know. We're going to assume every one of these letters was written straight to us. The first one today is about a church called Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus had a, a lot of good things going for it, but here they had a problem. The problem was they weren't doing good at loving one another. Uh, I heard a story a couple weeks ago of a sheriff in Georgia who got in big trouble. His name is Scott Berry. He got in big trouble because he canceled Valentine's Day for his whole city. Where's, Where's your gasp? Where's your shock? I'll say it again. He canceled Valentine's Day. He's like the anti-Cupid, with the nerve of this man. He went on Facebook and canceled it because there was this nasty ice storm on Wednesday leading into Thursday. He actually said, I, I free all of the men of the responsibility of giving their wives, girlfriends, and fiancés gifts this Valentine's Day. How do you think that went over? Angry phone calls, angry emails. This guy is like in big trouble. Why? Because he took the love out of Valentine's Day. No one does that. So the church in Ephesus, get this, they were in big trouble with Christ because they took the love out of the church. They took the love. They didn't cancel Valentine's Day, but they weren't treating each other lovingly and they weren't treating Christ lovingly. So the first church of Ephesus is going to help us see, as we get ready for our new opportunity in the new building, how to be a loving church. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, we just still are rejoicing at what you've done in our church and in our hearts. Praise you for your faithful provision. We call upon you, Lord, to now faithfully provide all of our needs getting into this building. But we don't want to get distracted. Father, we don't want to see bricks and mortar. We want to see people, people who you love. And we want to see you. So keep us focused on you, on your word, on your priorities, on your kingdom, for your glory, and help us today to get after that. In your name, amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Book of Revelation, chapter 2. Don't get all excited. We're not going through the book of Revelation. Some of you are like, oh, we're going to learn about the end times? No. Congratulations, by the way. Did you hear, you know, last year we had that Mayan apocalypse that didn't happen? Did you hear there was supposed to be a Viking apocalypse yesterday? The the whole world was supposed to fall into the sea. And then two people were supposed to rise up from the underworld to repopulate the earth. Glad you survived it. (laughs) It didn't happen. People always are guessing how the world's going to end. Hey, read the book of Revelation. Don't be afraid of it. It's an awesome book to read. Uh, You should read it because it tells you how the world's going to end. But in the first couple chapters, what we find is Jesus giving a revelation to the apostle John. And he, he starts... By reminding John who Jesus is, then he talks to seven different churches, then he gets to what's going to happen in the future. That's how the book is laid out. We're just going to stay in chapters two and three, uh, which won't give you nightmares about dragons and stars. A <laughs> little bit of background, just a little, because we're not going through the whole book. John was an apostle. He knew Jesus. He was the apostle that Jesus loved. He had a very special relationship with the Lord. He wrote the book of John, First John, Second John. Third John, Revelation, got to contribute as an author to the Bible. How are you going to spend your retirement? John spent it, exiled on an island called Patmos, where he was put because of his faith in the Lord. Exiled, no golf, no crossword puzzles, no nothing, no fun, nothing. That's where he was, and he was there because of Jesus. While he was on this island, Jesus gave him what's called a vision or a revelation. It's one way God can transmit truth. He just, boom, handed him this this very vivid portrayal of something that's real. Uh, And based on that, that's where the book of Revelation came from. So check out Revelation 2, verse 1, where it says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, listener's guide here. To the angel... Uh, The angel means messenger. The word angel simply means messenger. So sometimes messenger means heavenly messenger, like a real angel with the wings and the halo and all that, but it doesn't always mean that. In this context, it's probably best to see it as a human. Uh, Probably the primary spokesman in the church, uh, the pastor or the preacher, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Um, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, The star also refers to uh, that person um, who is the primary messenger. And and the lampstands refers to the churches. Check this out. Here's a map of the region. And uh, while it's small print, what you see here is that little bubble down there, that text bubble, that's Patmos. So that's where John was exiled. That's where he was writing from. Not a great place to live. Now, uh, you can kind of see where the word Asia is. It's not Asia as you know it. It's just Asia is what uh, this was called Um, back in this day, but uh, around there you see seven little green circles, and those are the churches that Jesus decides to talk to, all right? And Ephesus is the closest one in the lower left-hand corner. Um, And Jesus sends this message to these seven churches, but what John sees is he sees the Lord. He sees the Lord walking among these seven giant, blazing, golden lampstands. This is an artful way of Jesus showing John that Christ is walking among his church. The number seven is a number of fullness. So while he's writing to seven churches, he's really writing to every church, ours included. While he's walking among seven lampstands, he's really walking among all of the churches. And he's got these stars in his right hand. He's holding the leaders of these churches in his hand. That gives me great comfort. That gives me great fear because he's the one who's in total control of what's going on in his church. And then he says, say this to them. We see just how involved the Lord is in the churches. He's walking among them. He's talking to them. He's holding their leaders. He's protecting them. He's evaluating them. This is the Lord. Basically, this is a portrayal of how Christ is maintaining the spiritual life of all of his churches. Now, the church in Ephesus, listen. Wow. What an example they are to us. The Apostle Paul himself founded this church and was their founding preacher for like three years. How cool would it be to come to church every week and hear Paul every week? He writes a small group study and it like gets in the Bible. (laughs) This is your senior pastor. They knew truth. They knew what the truth was. And shortly after he left, he wrote them a book of the Bible called Ephesians, right? It would be pretty sweet if I were to say to you, open to the the book of Palos. New Testament, book of Pallas. Imagine having a book named after our city that was written right to us. And now it's about 40 years later, after they got the book of Ephesians, that John, the apostle John, writes them this letter. It says, hey, Jesus has a few things he wants to say to you. How cool would it be to celebrate our 40th anniversary? Awesome. How could it be? This church in Ephesus actually probably planted all other six churches that are getting this letter. So he's, Jesus is talking to like the mother church and then the daughter churches that she planted. Man, I'd love to have six churches, eight churches, ten churches that we have directly planted. This church in Ephesus is a role model for us. Plus, they saw the gospel fall in power in their city. They saw a great awakening, people coming and leaving their lives behind for Christ. They saw that. This is a great church. Jesus says in verse 2, he gives them some commendation. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is A plus. A, 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 A. The church in Ephesus is getting an A in truth. And here's the first thing we learn about our church. You could write this down. God's people must love truth. We must love truth. Ephesus shows us what it means for us to love truth. There's four things that we see in their church that we should see in our church. And the first thing that he says is this. I know your works, your toil. In those words is <laughs> sweating to the point of exhaustion. That's what those words mean. I know your work. I know your toil. I've seen you sweat to the point of exhaustion for me. Jesus is applauding this. Check, write this down. God's people must love truth. Work tirelessly for Christ. Work tirelessly for Christ. The church that loves truth will work hard to get the truth out. The church that loves truth will work tirelessly for the truth. They're getting an A in working for Christ. We say at Harvest, there's three W's of discipleship. Every disciple worships Christ, walks with Christ, and works for Christ. It's part of what you do for the Lord when you love his truth. He says here, I know your works, your toil. Do you know if you sat down with Jesus just at a coffee shop, he He'd be able to say to you, hey, Aaron, you know, I, I know exactly what you do at your church. I know that. Mandy, I could tell you exactly what you've done in the past. Mike, man, I know what you've done in your small group. I know what you've done on the elder team. I could tell you what you've done for me, and I love it. I love that you're working for me. Have you ever read that book to your kids called The Giving Tree? Who's, who's read that book called The Giving Tree? Where It's a little boy who goes up to a tree and asks for everything in life. You know, can I have your branches? Can I have your fruit? Can I have you? And then at the very end, the giving tree gives everything, and the little boy just sits down on the stump. Somebody wrote a, a, a parody of this and, and put it on, online. Here's a picture of the giving tree parody. <laughs> get a job. <laughs> get, get a job. Nobody loves a freeloader, right? Nobody loves it when somebody else is doing all the work. And in churches, commonly, there, there are a few people doing all the work, and the most people are just enjoying the labor of others. At our church, we say there's no such thing as bleachers or even a bench. We want everyone in the game every week fielding a position on the field, shouldering kingdom responsibilities. We want you to work for Christ somewhere some here at Harvest Palace, And Jesus loves it when you are sweating to make the mission move forward. Hey, raise your hand up if you're uh, on any ministry team here at Harvest Palace. You serve in some way. Raise your hand up nice and high. Nice and high. Okay, now some of you around these people are newer to the church. You're just getting f- Hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. You're getting a feel for what this church is all about. Listen, you wouldn't have a church to come to if these people didn't do what they did this week. All right. They're the ones who are making this church possible. We have over 100 people every week doing something in the church to make church happen. Jesus loves that. He loves it. He sees it. He knows it. He loves it. God's people must love truth, and part of loving truth is working to get the truth out. Second, it's the second sub-point here, appoint godly leaders. Work tirelessly for Christ, appoint godly leaders. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. This is a church that would not stand for evil, carnal, fake leaders. They would not put up with leaders who were not walking with Christ and growing in godliness and setting an amazing example. Wow, they appointed godly leaders. Jesus said, I love that about you. I love that about Wait a minute. He loves what? Loves what? Loves that... Some godly men in this church got around a table and said, that guy's no good. What he's doing to our church is no good. We need to get him out of here. And Jesus says, I love that. Because he was no good. And he was doing bad. He was feeding poison in our children's ministry. He was polluting our youth ministry. Who knows? He was in his small group leading them astray. We don't know. Out they went. And Jesus said, I love that you did that. You didn't put up with those men and what they were doing to our church. In our church, we strive for our leaders to set an example in every way. Our leaders aren't perfect, but they're godly. We meet once a month and we hold each other accountable to how we're leading. We even have a leadership covenant that we all sign. We hold each other accountable to setting the very best example in every area of our walk with Christ. I love our leaders. Jesus knows. In fact, if you're a leader in our church in any way, stand up small group leader, ministry leader. Stand up if you're a leader in our church. I want you to see them. All right, these are people who are doing more than just serving. They're leading. They're coaching. They're shepherding. They're putting in so much time throughout the week to care for you. And I know you've been blessed by some of these leaders. You can go ahead and sit down. Christ sees you. He knows your heart. He loves what you're doing for his church. God's people must love truth. That means working tirelessly for Christ. That means appointing godly leaders. Here's the next one. Clinging to sound doctrine. Write that down. We must cling to sound doctrine. We must cling to sound doctrine. He says you have tested, verse 2, you have tested those by what? By the truth. Who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. By sound doctrine, by doctrinal purity, they have purged the church of false teachers. Uh, the Church that allows false teachers on the stage, the Church that tolerates and justifies sin in the lives of the leaders, the Church that puts up with with theological bickering over non issues, breaks christ's heart. but the Church that loves truth will cling to sound doctrine, will promote sound doctrine, and hey, hey, there are some people in this church who are gifted at saying, "Hey, something smells fishy there that what that person's teaching sounds Not right. That's not in line with, hey, we need people like you. We need the voices of truth. Christ loves when that happens. Work tirelessly for Christ. Appoint godly leaders. Cling to sound doctrine. Here's the last one. Patiently endure attacks on our truth. Patiently endure attacks on our truth. Jesus says in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You know, in Ephesus, (laughs) you became a Christian instantly. You had problems at work. You had problems in your home. You had problems everywhere. You left your Jewish roots behind. You left your Greek roots behind. It doesn't matter. You had a bad name from the beginning. Do you know in the church in Ephesus, in the book of Acts, there was a two-hour-long riot in the theater because the silver unions were upset that they didn't have as much business making their idols because people were throwing them away and worshiping the one true God. It caused a union uproar that filled a theater of men and women shouting for two hours straight in anger. Welcome to Ephesus. You think these believers had to be strong? You think they had to be able to say at a family party or in a classroom or at the water cooler, hey, yes, this is what I believe. Go ahead. Tell me what you think, but you're not going to change me. This is my truth. They were strong. They stood up for the truth. They endured attacks on the truth. And if you're a Christian, you'll feel it. You'll feel the pressure. In fact, the word here means remaining under crushing pressure. You remain under crushing pressure for my name's sake. Maybe it comes from a parent who can't believe this is what you're doing with your life. Maybe it comes from a teacher who can't believe that this is the trash that you think. Maybe it comes from a friend of yours who can't believe those are the morals you're going to live by. Pressure, pressure, pressure to what? To bail, to quit. To give up to cave in jesus says i know i know the pressure and i know you've stood up you haven't grown weary you've been strong i love that our students are leading the charge at oakland high school love that our students are taking the gospel they're going to suffer they're going to suffer When we did an outreach at my last church at Glenbard South High School, the principal came the next year. I I spoke to 250 high school students, shared the gospel with them, and like 50 kids got saved. The principal found out and said, oh, things like that can't happen in a public school, and tried to shut the club down. Then someone showed the principal the Constitution. The superintendent issued an apology to all the parents for breaking the law. The club's back up and running. They're going to suffer. They're going to feel pressure. In Ephesus, they were arrested, beaten, threatened, marginalized. Jesus loves that. Jesus loves that. The Truth Church, Ephesus gives us an amazing example of working tirelessly, appointing godly leaders, clinging to sound doctrine, patiently enduring attacks on truth, standing up for what you believe to be right. But they had a problem. Check out verse 4. Jesus says, yes, 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 but. Verse 4, but. I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Jot this down. Truth-loving people must love Jesus. Truth-loving people must love Jesus. Maybe in your translation it says, you have abandoned your first love. Uh, we don't know exactly if Jesus was, was saying, you've abandoned your first love, meaning me. Like, you, you've abandoned me. We don't know if, if he means the person, it could also read, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Okay? We don't know which is right, so it's intentionally vague. Jesus wants you to maybe think you've abandoned your first love, me, or you've abandoned the love you had at first, meaning the love that you showed with your fellow believers. We're going to talk about both, but first, let's talk about the Lord. Hey, do you know that in our church, We can work to exhaustion. We could prune our leader team. We could get the Bible studies happening. We could stand up and defend our faith. And at the end of it all, do you know Jesus can say to us, you know, I I just don't feel loved. Do you know that's possible? You know that's possible to have the truth thing, A plus, but Jesus doesn't feel that devotion, that connection. When Jesus appeared to Peter after the resurrection, he didn't say to him, Peter. Where's your ESV study Bible? He didn't say, Tell me the five major themes of the book of Isaiah. He he didn't say, Explain to me now the finer points of the atonement. What did he say? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Our relationship, how is it? And maybe you're getting the checks done throughout your week of spiritual devotion, but maybe just possibly... Things are growing cold between you and your Savior. and Maybe this is what he's saying to you. Truth-loving people must love Jesus. We don't just love doctrine. We don't just love church. We don't just love ministry. We love Jesus. Loving Jesus is what it means to be a Christian. John 16.27, we'll put it on the screen, says, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Loved me. He says you loved me. Truth loving people must love Jesus. How do I know if things have grown cold between me and the Lord? Well, there's a couple ways you might want to just assess this in your life. First, is your prayer life growing formal and flatlined? You could write that down. My prayer life is growing formal and flatline. I listen to a John Piper podcast every day. I liked Beth Moore's Facebook page. I'm pen pals with K. Arthur. Yeah, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Are you praying boldly? Are you praying confidently? Are you praying humbly? Are you praying lovingly? Are you praying persistently? How's your prayer life? That's how you express devotion to the Lord. Here's the next one. My prayer life is formal and flatline. The next one, my offerings are careless or selfish. My offerings are careless or selfish. Does Jesus care about my giving? I told you at the vision night the story of the woman who had a jar of perfume. And this was worth a year's worth of income. Ladies, just try and convince your husband to allow you to buy a perfume that's worth a whole year's worth of his salary. She had it. She broke it open and poured it on her Lord. People all around her said, why are you wasting this? And Jesus said, she's done a beautiful thing for me. For me. For me. Are your offerings careless, selfish, or are, they, are you giving joyfully? Are you giving generously? Are you giving meaningfully? Meaning, I felt convicted on this one because I give online. We have that online giving. And I thought, man, I don't even really stop to pray throughout the week that my offering, you know, would go to the Lord and make Him feel loved. I need to get on that. How are you doing with that? Truth-loving people must love Jesus. The next one, my worship is joyless and routine. My prayer life is formal and flatline. My offerings are careless and selfish. My worship is joyless and routine. Maybe you grew up in a church that was getting the truth done, but then, but then during worship it almost felt like more of a truth experience. Like you just had to stand there and you could not show emotion because we are basically putting truth to music. We're singing big old theology words, five verses of Mighty Fortress is Our God, and heaven forbid, if you get worked up, look out. This is a truth moment, you know, and at the end of it you're just like, that is so true, and then you just sit down. You know, maybe you grew up in a truth church that struggled to show joy, not for truth, for the Savior. See, we're not singing about truth Sunday morning. We're singing to the truth, and it's a person. We're not just putting the periodic table of theology to music so that we all know it better. We're singing to Him, who is the truth. It's a meaningful encounter with the living Christ, and He loves it. Truth-loving people must love Jesus. He says, hey, remember what it was like. Remember what it was like. Hey, repent, turn around, and do the works again of love. Do you know, in marriage, the fire starts to go out. You feel like that feeling is fading. You know, you can sit around and try and muster up emotions, or you can get out and do something special for the one you love and go on dates again, and you can start remembering those first moments and why you fell in love. If you do those things, the feelings follow the actions. See? Same thing is true with Christ. Truth-loving people must love Jesus. Here's the third point. Truth-loving people must love people. Truth-loving people must love people. So now we're going to read the same verses, but apply them a little differently. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. We're going to now assume he's talking about the love you have in general for the church. You're not loving people anymore. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. Truth-loving people must love people. He said you abandoned it. And he said you have to repent, which means this is a sin issue. Write this down. Because truth minus love equals sin. Because truth minus love equals sin. It's sin to think truth is enough. It's sin to think truth is enough is enough. He wants you to be building loving relationships with the believers in this room. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. He uses the word fallen. You've fallen. Now I already told you in the past that I have I love, (laughs) I love to see people lose big on game shows. Do you know that about me? I love that. One of the other things I love is I love to see Olympic wipeouts. I just love it. I love to see them fall. You love it too. So I put a couple pictures together. Check this out. Here's some Olympic wipeouts. That's my favorite. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to leave that up there just for a moment because Jesus uses the word fallen. This guy fell. He's falling a long way. And if, as a church, we get the truth thing going and we fail to get the love thing going, that is us. That's us. If you as a believer get the personal discipleship thing going, get the knowledge thing going, and fail to get the community thing going, that is you. We get people all the time who come to our church and they just think that discipleship is learning more, learning more, learning more. That's them. They're wrong. That's not all it's about. And if we fail at the truth, we, if we fail at the truth, we fail. But if we fail at the love, we fail too. If you read the book of Ephesians, you can almost sense that the apostle Paul thought this church might struggle with love. Pretty much the second half of the book is all about how to be loving. They must not have read that part. He talks about he talks about humility and gentleness and patience and speaking the truth in love and walking in love and being imitators of God. He talks about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. The last verse of the whole book is grace to those who love Jesus with love incorruptible. But they only picked and choose the parts they wanted to read. And 40 years later, the apostle John had to thump them on the head because they still weren't getting the love thing going. All right, And many people, this can be a blind spot. So if you're more of a truth person, maybe this is for you. Truth minus love equals sin. Jesus is not fine with you passing on building loving relationships in the church. I've got friends at work. Not the same. I love my family. In the church. In the church. Building loving relationships in the church is what he's after. Jot this next one down. Truth-loving people must love people because God will judge the loveless church. God will judge the loveless church. He will hurl us down, careening out of control, flipping end over end, if we don't love. He says he will remove the lampstand. Just imagine him going over to one of these and picking it up and moving it, putting it outside and putting the light out. He's shutting it down. Shut it down. Wait a minute. They've written some amazing Bible studies. The preaching there is fantastic. Shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it down. Why? Because they got an F in love. And it's not good enough. God will judge the loveless church. Uh, I think each one of us sitting here this morning gets to decide if we're a loving church or not. We get to decide. We're a young church, concrete is still hardening, our values are still forming. And we can be a casual, disconnected, cold, brittle church, or we can be a loving, deeply rooted, closely connected church. It says, "Do the work, repent, remember what it was like, do the works of love." Well, what does that mean? Um, here at Harvest, we say that uh, that the primary care happens in our small groups. So, if you want to feel loved by other believers in this church, it'll happen in small groups. That's the place where primarily people will use their, small, their uh, spiritual gifts to serve you. That's where God will manifest his presence to you in a very close and special way. It's in small groups. That's also the place where you can get serious about knowing what other people are going through. You can lend a hand. The Bible says we can bear one another's burdens, right? That happens in small groups. We're not a church with small groups. We're a church of small groups, meaning if you consider this to be your church home, we don't have Sunday school. We don't have Sunday night. We don't have Wednesday night. Our discipleship model is small groups. So if you've been around our church for six months or more, you've got to get into a small group. Uh, we can't care for you if you're not in a small group. You really won't be able to care for other believers in this church if you're not in a small group. Meaning if you're in a small group, you can put all of these commands in the New Testament into practice to love one another. Our small groups are doing starting right now. It's a great time to get in. A study called Uncommon Community. We're learning what it means to love one another, forgive one another, serve one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, be devoted to one another. We're getting after this. And you have to make a choice that if this is going to be your church home, am I really going to become a loving person? And am I really going to let other people love me? Uh, if, if you've been around for six months and you're still not in a small group, we've heard the excuses Maybe you say, well, we're too busy. Our life just won't allow for that at all. Let me just push back on that. If you're too busy to build meaningful relationships with the family of God, you're busier than God intends you to be. We're not going to back off of that because Christ takes this seriously, right? Well, I come to church and get the sermons and do a Bible study. Not enough. You want to see the picture again? Not enough. Not enough. It's sad when we've also seen people who have decided not to get into a small group and then they go through a trial and they're all alone, wondering where God is, why he feels so far away, where the church is, and and you just haven't given us the opportunity to be there for you. Uh, And it's sad. There is a cost to not getting into a small group. Life is harder, and God wants it to be harder because you're trying to do it another way than the Bible sets forth. Several people also say to us, well, budget-wise, how do we afford child care? Things are already tight. We've, we've got that in the budget. If you need assistance, we could help you find a babysitter. Don't let that be your excuse. We can get you into a small group. But what I would just say, and I, I say this lovingly, is if you've been around our church six months, you're thinking this is your church home, you're not in a small group. It's a strong word. Repent. Repent. Start building the loving relationships that Jesus expects you to be building. Truth-loving people must love people. And the last point is this. We must be truth-loving and truly loving. Write that down. We must be truth-loving and truly loving. Both. This is where we just smoosh them together and say you've got to go for both. Can't settle for one or the other. Truth-loving and truly loving. Jesus says, remember, repent, repent. Do the works you did at first, verse 6. He says, yet this I have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's now getting back to the truth side of things. He's, he's ending on a note that will make the truth people happy. Okay, the grace people, you were all happy right there where I was talking about loving community and loving one another and being, right, we're back on truth now. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These are strong words. He's saying, go for the love, don't let go of the truth on the way. See, he didn't want the grace people to rise up and say, see, we shouldn't have put those people out of the church. We need to get more loving. Jesus is like, no, no. Listen to what he says. He says, You've got this going for you. There are those Nicolaitans there. We don't know what they believe, but they were false teachers. You hate what they're teaching, you hate what they're doing. And Jesus says, I hate that too. I hate that. My wrath is kindled at what those men are doing and saying and believing. And he says, I love that you hate that too. So you see, now he's back to getting the truth people to see that what they're doing is good. Okay, don't give those people positions in your church. Don't let them teach your children. Get I love that you hate them. See, but now we're all confused because I'm supposed to love and I'm supposed to hate? How on earth do those things come together? Just to be clear, he wants us to know that he's not saying love everyone the same way and love everyone regardless of what they believe the same way. He said, that's not the kind of love I'm going for. I'm going for all of the love for a person and all of the truth for a person. And both can be true at the same time. I read a quote by G.K. Chesterton. I think he really does a great job of blending this idea of Christians we're supposed to love and we're supposed to hate. He does a good job of bringing these together. He says this, What we need is not the cold acceptance of the world as a compromise, but some way in which we can heartily hate and heartily love it. We do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. We have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed, and yet as our own cottage to which we can return at the evening. We must be much more angry with theft than before. And yet, much kinder to thieves than before. There is room for both wrath and love to run wild. That's good. It's both. We're supposed to hate all that opposes God. Loathe it. We're supposed to abhor what is evil, the book of Romans says, to cling to what is good. We're going for both. And Jesus says, that truth people are going to love this, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, heaven is waiting. Listen, we need to face this. Jesus is giving a big amen to the truth people. We will win. The word is conquer. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to dispense bread from heaven. He's not coming back to sit down and to tell people how to get... He's coming back as a conquering, reigning, ruling king with the sword of truth coming from his mouth to destroy all those who have not believed the gospel and who are standing against them. All right? And you need to understand deep in your soul, as you're taking it for the truth and as you're being opposed and as you look at what's going on in the world and it appalls you, we will win and they will lose. And when Christ comes back, he will destroy everything that is said against him and establish his kingdom. It will be. awful it will be tragic it will be bloody it will be horrific and all the grace people are like i think i'm going to be sick (laughs) that's why we need both because he's coming back and there is a limited group of people who will get into the paradise of god and it's our job to get the truth out to them lovingly so that they can be saved that's our job how do these two things come together The most loving thing you can ever do is lead someone to the truth of Christ. To give them anything less is unloving, given the eternity that's coming. The most truthful thing you can ever do is lead someone to the love of Christ. Because he is the truth. You can give them all the facts and Bible studies and points and arguments, but if you don't give them the person, you haven't given them the truth. We're going for both. We want to be a church filled with truth, passionate about truth, defending the truth, knowing that the eternity of souls is at stake. And we want to be a loving church, caring for one another on a weekly basis, involved in each other's lives. It's both. Jesus came from the Father full of grace, full of truth. That's what we're going for. Let's pray. How encouraging it is, Lord, to know that you came down from heaven because God so loved the world. Thank you for your love, Father. Jesus, forgive us for when we allow our relationship with you to grow cold. When we're just going through the motions, just behaving ourselves because we know right and wrong, but we're not giving you our heart, our Lips may be praising you, but our hearts are far from you. Jesus, forgive us for that. We want you to know that we love you. We are passionate about you, our relationship with you. You are our king and our friend and our Lord. Forgive us for when we don't love one another. Forgive us for prioritizing our own lives, getting too busy, distracted, crowding out, our family members who we will see forever in heaven. Lord, help us to be a church with deep roots and strong bonds. Help us with that. Father, as more and more people find us and start joining, pray that you would help them to get connected. Help us to be close to one another. Increase the number of leaders we have, small group leaders and flock leaders. Help us, Lord, to care properly for your sheep. And yet, help us to not let go of the truth. Jesus, we know that the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, you will return, judgment will be handed down. We can't lose sight of that. Help us to protect the doctrine, guard the leadership, and get the gospel out. Praise you for entrusting it into our care. May we be good stewards as your spirit leads us. In your name, amen.